Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I am one of your regular co-hosts Paul Anderson here this week with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, we're back again, uh, a little late again and this was definitely my fault. So um, we keep saying we're going to resume normal service. We are going to resume normal service. I can make that promise not only to you listeners but to Pete. I make that promise to you as well. How are you sir? Uh, In these troubled times Paul Anderson we only have the day that we're currently living in and today I'm doing okay. Although I should say, with that having been said, that this is the second attempt we've made at recording this episode because we had the most mysterious of audio glitchy issues that I'm not sure have still been completely overcome. So I, for some reason, have agreed to do the edit this week and that may be a decision I regret, (laughs) but hopefully this has come out in listenable quality and you're gonna stick with us for the duration. Uh, Obviously, uh, Paul, we got a ton to talk about as ever not least because there has been a bigger gap as per at the moment but uh, we're going to get to not one but two features this week we've got proxima uh, the new ava green space movie or or maybe uh, pre-space movie you could say and uh, we've got one other one remind me what it is oh of course it's baby teeth uh, the australian indie drama that is getting a, a pretty good uh, sort of range of critical responses at this point and i'm looking forward to talking about that one in due course but we've also got the other sections of the show that you're familiar with by now i expect we're bringing back coming attractions we want to talk about films that are starting to come back to our cinema screens which you know um, touch wood is something that will continue in the coming months before that we've got popcorn movies we'll review the films we've been watching over the last what is now probably two weeks and um, before all of that we've got in the foyer we walk you through an audio tour of a trip to the cinema and we start in the foyer for every show with film news what's the film news at the moment paul you're usually better at knowing what that is <laughs> uh yeah so the weekend just gone we've had uh, dc's fandom i believe it's called um in which in which dc have announced uh, some more information on a huge raft of films um coming up uh, they've released some more information on The Rock playing uh, the DC supervillain stroke anti-hero Black Adam, uh, which looks quite exciting. Uh, they've released some more information. There's an awesome featurette on James Gunn directed The Suicide Squad. They've confirmed the cast list, which I won't list them all here, but it looks incredible. And Nathan Fillion's in it, so I'm very, very happy uh, that Nathan Fillion and Michael Rooker are in a film together again. So that's all good. Um, the featurette's very cool. You should check it out. Um, but I think probably the biggest news to come out of um, DC fandom would be the fact that we now have a trailer for Matt Reeves' uh, The Batman, uh, starring, Robin, starring Robert Pattinson. Um, and we've both watched the trailer. Pete, you're less of a fan of trailers, I think, than, than I am in general. Um, what did what did you make of this as a, as a trailer? I mean, are you excited for yet more Batman? Um, and if you weren't, has this trailer kind of changed your mind? I well, guess? first of all, my right to reply. I mean, I'm not <laughs> against trailers. What I am against is trailers that give you the entire plot of the film. And, and I think the art of the trailer is so rarely done right or given the sort of due credit that it deserves or, or due time and attention. But with that having been said, the Batman trailer, yeah, I'm kind of a bit conflicted. I think on the one hand, uh, Matt Reeves is great at shooting sort of um, dark material. Uh, I really liked, I think more than you did, the War for the Planet of the Apes, the most recent Planet of the Apes movie that he directed. And I thought some of the, just the 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 visual language of that movie I found particularly satisfying and that might be something that is going to carry over here to this Batman project and I like Batman I used to love Batman and I think I've just been sort of beaten down a little bit by the amount of content and that brings me to the other side of my complicated feelings which is feels a bit too soon doesn't it to have another outing of a new Batman Robert Pattinson taking on the reins this time but it doesn't feel like many years ago that we were all bracing ourselves for what Chris Nolan would do with Batman, and now here we are. I don't know. I don't know. Where are you at on that? I mean, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I think in order to bring some kind of credibility back to the character, I think a reboot was probably needed because no matter the excitement out there for the Snyder Cut, which was also trailered at, at the Fandom event, um, the vast majority of people I speak to uh, and have watched Batman vs Superman and Justice League, whether Snyder recuts it or not, 
are not great fans of what he's done with the character. They are not great fans of what those films did. So um, a vocal minority they may be that want the Snyder Cut and more power to them. For those people who like Snyder's work, then more power to you. I hope you get a lot out of the Snyder Cut. It's not for me. It doesn't work for me. So for me, this felt like... I don't know. I was kind of with you. I was like, actually, is this going to be too soon? What are they going to do differently with it? Um, and I, I'll be honest, I've been won over by the trailer in quite a big way. Um, I think I thought Patterson was going to be great. I think he's great for the part. We've never really seen a young Batman on screen before. This features Batman in it's been confirmed in year two of his crime fighting career. So um, fairly as a fairly new superhero. So that should be quite interesting to see um, how that pans out because he's normally been more established in the films that we've seen him before. Um, Matt Reeves is a director. Yeah, it's weird. I keep, I keep meaning to revisit his Planet of the Apes films because I didn't much rate either of them, but I know a lot of people did. Um, so it could be a, a good time to revisit those but he's definitely a competent he's definitely a capable director there's no arguing that he definitely knows how to handle the budget whatever whatever i thought of the planet of the apes films his looked incredible so i think um i think this will look great i i'm quite excited for this i'll be honest after the trailer it's kind of it's one won, won me over what do you, what do you make of the voice because there's the bit in the trailer where they very much anticipate that you're ready for who are you I'm Batman, like yeah. in Batman Begins when Nolan rebooted this, the franchise. But this time we get I'm Vengeance in a voice that I wasn't entirely sure about. How did you feel about okay. the sound of your new Batman? To be honest, I was more distracted by the fact that uh, the this, this voice of Paul Dano in there as the Riddler. Did you pick up on that? Oh, maybe briefly, Which, yeah. Uh, you know, I am just... I, more, than, more than Pattinson and Batman, I'm probably more excited just to see Paul Dano hamming it up as the Riddler because I think he's going to be great as a supervillain. And also there is a near unrecognisable Colin Farrell in the trailer playing Penguin as well, um, who has apparently put on a lot of weight for the role and is under a lot of prosthetics to the point where I didn't spot him at all. My wife was like, you know, Colin Farrell was in that trailer. I was like, no way was he. He is in there somewhere. Um, yeah, I didn't mind the voice, to be honest. I, I, I quite I quite like the look of Batman. I thought that scene where he beat the shit out of the guy was awesome. Um, it looks like it's not going to hold back on the violence, which is, which, you know, um, I think is it could be a good approach to take here. I think it's going to be dark. I think it's going to be moody for sure. It's kind of the antithesis to the Marvel films. I think DC have realised they need to do something different to Marvel, and that seems to be the route they're going down now. Um, but yeah, um, more than anything, Paul Dano as the Riddler for me will be the big draw to this one, 100%. Yeah, and what are we looking at for release? October 2021. Okay, well, fair enough. Maybe my too soon comment will be sort of watered down over the coming months, and by the time we get there, I'll feel more ready for it. I think if it was if it was set to release sort of the very first part of next year, it would seem too soon for me. But I think it was. I think it was, but I know filming was postponed due to the pandemic, um, and it's, ju it's just recently restarted again. So um, it has certainly been pushed back. Maybe because they thought, you know, Pete Wolf from Strange in the Cinema, he's not ready for more Batman. That could well be it. You might have <laughs> put your finger right on the, uh, on the issue there. Uh, any more news for this week, Paul? Um, no, that's pretty much it for me, to be honest. That's the, that's the big news I've picked up. Cool. On. In that case, we'll bounce out for just a second. We'll be right back with Popcorn Movies after this. So, back we are with Popcorn Movies. This is the section of the show where we normally talk about things we've seen in the last seven days. In this case, it's more than that. Um, so, we've got a bit to talk about, I think. Um, do you want to jump in first, Pete? Yeah, I've got a bunch. I've got a half dozen here, but I will keep them brief, I promise. And if I'm not doing so, please cut across me, Paul, and tell me to shut up. Uh, first one, I think this one's pretty interesting, and I'm interested to know whether you've seen this or are aware of it. It's a movie called Chevalier. Uh, Chevalier, do, first of all, do you know what this is? No, this is the first I've heard of it. Okay, so uh, this is a film about a group of fellas who are on a yacht, a kind of luxury yacht, uh, released originally in 2015, by the way, uh, on a luxury yacht, and they are competitive, naturally, in the way that men, when left to their own devices, tend to be, I guess. Uh, and this competition starts off as sort of friendly ribbing of each other, maybe trying to be the best at a certain thing. And then when they're sitting down one evening, one of them says, hey, you know what, why don't we have a competition to see who actually is the best across a series of mental and physical challenges? Uh, something of a yacht-based Krypton factor. Uh, 
for younger <laughs> listeners, it was a show on TV back in the old dusty days. But uh, instead, another man steps in and says, you know what, that's not enough for me. I'll, I'll only get involved in the competition if we can grade each other on absolutely everything we do. So we carry around notebooks and I look at how you walk, how you make comments, what you eat, how you swim, how you jump into the water. Everything is fair game for ranking and competition. And in the end, we can find who is the overall best. This idea, as you might imagine, is played for uh, sort of blackly comic laughs a lot of the time. And the film concerns itself with delving into the male psyche and sort of toxic masculinity as it plays out in its various ugly forms. There are moments that genuinely made me laugh out loud. Uh, A moment where one of the characters, a slightly portly man, performs... Uh, a cover of a pop song or a lip syncing of a pop song whilst another man waves sort of sparklers and flares in the background I enjoyed quite a bit there have been critics (laughs) of the movie who uh, I've read who have said that maybe this doesn't do anything with the central idea and maybe it's simply holding it up and sort of ogling at this you know toxic masculinity without having anything to say about it I don't agree with that criticism and I think that it is relatively insightfully written and I think there's enough here to get you thinking a little bit but also to make you laugh and I think that's a pretty appealing combination of of, you know factors for me so Chevalier worked for me maybe it won't work for everyone maybe the sort of claustrophobic nature of men being stuck on a boat for the entire runtime might be too much for some it runs an hour and three quarters but I like this thing and I would recommend it to others including yourself Paul if you get the chance I will seek it out um here's a film that I won't be recommending to you Pete or anyone else um I'm not entirely sure uh, why I watched it in fact no I know why I watched it because me, me and my lovely wife watched saw the happened across the trailer uh, for the secret colon dare to dream and thought that might be so bad it's entertaining uh what i didn't expect was it to be so bland it was it wasn't entertaining in the slightest um the premise of this and i don't know much about this and to be honest i thought i'd do some reading about it and the more i the more i the more i thought about doing some reading about it i thought i'm giving this idea too much if i even google this i'm giving this idea too much credence the secret apparently is some kind of like self-help um book or scheme in the u.s um, that that I, I get the gist of this. You're nodding at me, Pete. If, maybe you maybe you subscribe to it, and I in which case I you, you can't subscribe. It's but, literally a book. It's like a really popular best-selling book, The Secret. Right. Okay. So the the gist I get from this film is that if you think positive things, positive things will come to you. And that that is the gist of that is the gist of the film. Um, it's as cheesy and as badly written and as cliched as you'd expect. Um, you've got. Uh, Katie Holmes uh, is starring in this. Josh Lucas um, is in this. Jerry O'Connell's in this. They're all kind of phoning in performances. It's a very, very cliched, very kind of. It's it's like the poor, poor man's Nicholas Sparks, and that's saying something. I would say is where that where this where this sits for me. It's cliched nonsense, and you should steer well clear. The secret of this film is not is to watch it. It's shit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It sounds that way. Um, I can jump straight into then a, a, a really highbrow offering in the form of Roadhouse from 1989. I, do- I bloody love I don't Roadhouse. know that I'd ever seen. Certainly I haven't. Having watched it now, I don't think I've seen the whole movie from beginning to end. And boy, there's a lot of movie to get through. Um, it, it's two hours long, first of all. Secondly, there is not a film here. I mean, it is a film about an enforcer played by the least likely enforcer of all time in Patrick Swayze, who looks about four foot seven in the movie and has like like twig thin arms compared to a load of meatheads that he summarily, you know, beats to death in the in the bar that he ends up working for. He basically gets headhunted as like the tough guy to come and get the filth out of a bar that's so filthy that the house band has to play behind uh, like chicken wire so that they don't get bottled off stage every night uh, I mean it's something I mean there's there's laughs in here uh, maybe the bar brawl the bar brawl is one of the finest in history the it's bar brawl's the entire other. movie is there any movie that isn't the bar brawl uh, my, my personal highlight I think of the film Roadhouse is when an adversary uh, who is fighting Swayze down by the creek tries to throw a drop kick into into the action and gets his leg stuck in a tree 
it's uh, it's a real treat. <laughs> Isn't there, yeah, like drop kicking a guy off a motorbike happens at one point. There's a bit of sort of, if I remember yeah, right, like yeah. really kind of ropely shot action sequence, exterior action sequence stuff. There's that sort of like um, softly lit sort of sub erotica stuff that goes on between Swayze and his leading lady in this thing played by Kelly Lynch. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, Sam Elliott's kind of good value in it. And then seeing Sam Elliott play basically the exact same role in uh, in the Get Lady Gaga movie. Remind me of the name of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the Star, Star is, is Born. born thank one, you. Yeah. yeah, was something. Um, but it, I mean, it's ludicrous. <laughs> it's absolutely ludicrous. But, but can I say hand on heart that I didn't enjoy the movie? No, I can't. It's kind of enjoyable, but it is really like triple underlined ludicrous this thing uh that's roadhouse uh, paul what else have you got uh this is the latest from uh director amy semetz um this is she dies tomorrow uh starring caitlin shell jane adams kentucky audley um yeah i uh, amy semetz isn't a, she, she's not a director i'm massively familiar with although i understand she's done some work i think on the is it the girlfriend experience or or something similar yeah to yeah that? she directed a bunch um, of episodes and she's, and she's in that as yeah, well she, yeah, so she's she's acted in a few bits I've seen for sure. Um, so I was quite excited about this. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, and I'll be I will also be honest. It let me down. I think to be honest, it's it's a very strange film. So the 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 kind of the the premise is that you have a character called Amy, played by Caitlin Shell, who uh basically who starts to come to the conclusion that she is dying tomorrow. Um, this proves contagious um to other people in her life, and the film centers on people who then start. To, everyone starts to think. They will die tomorrow. Um, it's a great premise. I think it's a really, really clever premise, and it's been described as like the accidentally the most twenty twenty film of twenty twenty, which I get with everything that's been going on. And I think the performances are great. I just found the first half completely cold and unengaging. I don't know whether it was supposed to be funny, whether it missed a mark. The people, the characters were sort of super hipsters who talk very just 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 not likable characters and maybe that was the point but i just found the whole thing the first probably 45 minutes and we're looking at a 90 minute film here the first 45 minutes i felt found very very cold and, and completely unengaging um there is some really nice visual flourishes um throughout like the first 45 minutes the second half i felt the film opened up a little bit we got to experience more characters i think things things did improve for me but i can't heartily recommend it as an entirely enjoyable experience it's an interesting film for sure um and anything that is this and there's some very i said there's some very bold um there's some very bold moments in it there's some very bold cinematography which some people again you'll, you'll like it or loathe it um i quite like i quite like the cinematography i quite like how the film looks i like it when people take risks i just don't think it it completely paid off here that being said such a bold directorial vision should always be celebrated in my book so um yeah i can't heartily recommend it it's certainly i can't promise everyone listening will like it um but if you are if you're interested in sort of slightly more obscure films or, or certainly indie films then watch it and make your own mind up even if you end up not liking it there's some good ideas in here and there's some great performances in here i think it shows a lot of potential but for me at least it didn't didn't quite didn't quite uh, land it I'm a bit of an Amy Simetz fanboy, so I haven't seen this yet, but I'm still looking forward to it very much so. So I'll come back on the show. I think you should be. Yeah, no, absolutely. Don't get me wrong. I, I think you should be. And I'm not I'm not here to say that it's a bad film by a long stretch. It just didn't. It just left me cold in parts um, and then I warmed up to it. So, yeah, I think absolutely you should be looking forward to it, I think. Um, one not so much to look forward to uh, if you haven't seen it yet Paul is The Night Clerk on Netflix currently this is a fairly new arrival at least in the UK uh, version of Netflix I think it's been there for a few weeks directed and written by uh, aging theatricalist slash filmmaker Michael Christopher uh, this thing is what you get if you combine early 90s erotica sliver with an, uh, a night clerk who has Asperger's and then beautiful yet more beautiful Anna Diarmas's face. Um, that is the movie. I mean, we've got a guy... It, it, initially, I'll give it the fact that it was mildly intriguing that you've got a guy who's doing... Have you seen that movie, Sliver, with Sharon Stone? Years ago. I don't recall 
Is that where someone's watching people yeah, on videos? Yeah, 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 yeah. I've just about remembered. Yeah, the premise, in that yeah. film, it's an apartment building. In this film, it's a hotel. But you've got the guy on the desk, and he's rigged up all these cameras in rooms. They're hidden cameras, so he can watch all the guests in the in the various rooms around the hotel. Uh, and of course, he witnesses something that he maybe shouldn't have witnessed, but something where he feels suddenly compelled to um, intervene in a situation, a violent situation. Uh, this guy, of course, played by Ty Sheridan, I think I mentioned, and. He, as someone suffering with or someone with Asperger's, is not really able to read social cues. He's not really able to understand what it is that he should do. So he spends his life practicing human behavior and sort of how to mimic the way that other people act. Uh, there's there's kind of intrigue in there, or it, but it all feels a little bit iffy uh, in slightly poor taste, perhaps. But then when the film really lost me is when it tries to spin this kind of love strand between this Ty Sheridan character and Anna Diarmas, and I did not buy it for a second. I mean, it just is a kind of ludicrous idea on its face. And then the film sort of just devolves into the least thriller-ish thriller that I've seen in, in quite a long time. And then it just kind of ends. And I don't know, man. It's one of those where it feels like a kind of algorithmically generated Netflix unit of product that <laughs> has bolted in a couple of vaguely viable maybe second tier stars and and run with that support from helen hunt as well i mean there are names here there are reasons to be interested and then you end up disappointed so yeah it just it doesn't work i mean i think ty sheridan does a reasonable job of you know portraying someone who's on the uh, autism spectrum i suppose i think anna diarmas does a good job of you know looking amazing um but apart from that i can't really recommend this um she's topless at one point i mean that's how low i've sunk there's uh, there's, <laughs> wow, there's, okay. there's so little to recommend the movie yeah, it just doesn't work man it just totally doesn't work and, and i'm really it's really quite a disappointment to me because she's someone who seems to be making increasingly good choices and this ain't that so um yeah probably avoid um i might just bung in another one because i know that i've got a couple of extras and i'll get this one out of the way yeah, no I caught up with Unhinged, which is on general release right now. This is a vehicle for a sweaty, fat version of Russell Crowe to be incredibly nasty for its entire runtime. Uh, there were pictures I know circulating months back of like, look how Russell Crowe's let himself go. The guy's a complete disaster. But obviously that was him getting into the shape he needed to play essentially Michael Douglas in Falling Down, except, right. except rather than sort of railing at society in a more sort of generalised socio-political sense, he just seems like kind of a shithead who gets really, really angry because he's cut up in his car by uh, the character played by Karen Pistorius and her son, uh, who's a passenger at the time. And then he sets about making her entire life miserable for the next 24 hours, I guess, uh, in which time he's willing to basically hunt and kill her entire family in order to make a point about civility in society. It didn't really have anything to say. Um, it didn't leave me, you know, thinking deeply about the society and sort of the way of the world. At the same time, it was perfectly viable kind of B-movie stuff. And I think that it was carried off with enough sort of icky head smashing panache that you know i'm not above that paul i'm not above that i'm not saying that i'm better than that and i would say i had a reasonably good time albeit around a very toxic horrible human being in the form of this russell crowe character and i guess that's to the movie's credit and certainly to his credit because it is a performance that i'll remember in a movie that is I think relatively forgettable. Although if you're a fan of um, the actor Jimmy Simpson, uh, ooh, you're in for something with this one. But uh, <laughs> yeah, say no more. That one's unhinged, still on general release, I think. Uh, what else have you got, Paul? Uh, here's a film that we are both above. I'll be honest with you. Both of us, Pete, me and you are definitely above this film. This is a film called Mac and Me uh, from 1988, which I did put out an Instagram post on the other day when I was watching it. Um, this is... An abs absolutely shameless ripoff of ET. Like, imagine if ET was shit um, and had a weird, creepy, bum-faced alien in it. Um, this is Mac and Me. Um, it's got one of the most. It's it was paid. Uh, my understanding is it was pretty much co-funded by McDonald's and Coca-Cola. Um, so I've never seen as many Coca-Cola cans in a film as there are in this film. And there's a visit to McDonald's, which for me was probably one of the only entertaining moments of this absolute disaster of a film. 
when they have a trip to McDonald's and have a burger and everyone at McDonald's bursts out into this incredible song and dance routine like it's the greatest place in the world. Um, what I will do, though, is I would say find that clip on YouTube and don't subject yourself to the rest of the film. It's so much like E.T., it's embarrassing. Uh, it's just, yeah, just imagine if E.T. was shit. Picture that film. That's Mac and me. I don't know why I sat through all of it. YouTube, YouTube the McDonald's dance section, but really avoid this. It's an absolute disaster. Um, steer well clear. It sounds like you've had a fantastic time watching films of late. <laughs> I have, yeah. Really, really enjoyed, really enjoyed films. Um, one <laughs> I've got here, uh, complete, well, I, I, uh, maybe not a total shift from Unhinged, I suppose. Uh, this one is Gate of Flesh from 1964 from the director Seijun Suzuki. It's an int- interesting one, this, Paul. It's one where you have to really wrestle with the disc so that you can get it into some form of watchable, non-letterbox to absolute death format. Right. But if you persist, I think uh, it's one to be recommended. This movie, Gate of Flesh, tells the story of a post-World War II Tokyo in which we are centred on a group of prostitutes who work in a kind of um, subterranean brothel just below the streets of the city. Uh, A place in which they basically uh, mess with, if not kill, anyone they come across who steps onto their territory and shouldn't be there. They also are having various realizations about the roles that they play or at least the relative value that they're ascribed in this post-World War II Japan not least the realization that I think stood out most in this movie which is when they realize that they sell their bodies for the exact same price that the uh, average customer on the street would pay for beef uh, they can uh, gut a carcass of a cow in their subterranean layer as well, which is, yeah, really something that will turn your stomach and stay with you for a while. It's a film from a filmmaker who has things to say, and I think they're said in a way that is pretty on the nose and is pretty anti-American and deliberately so, but is kind of bracing in its delivery and confrontational in its delivery. Uh, Not to mention the fact that our gang of uh, merry or not so merry merry prostitutes are sort of colour-coded, like a group of Power Rangers or something like that, which has a sort of visual appeal to it. Uh, Yeah, I mean, maybe don't watch it with the whole family, but Gate of Flesh, an interesting 1960s Japanese offering that is certainly confronting and interesting in, in fairly equal measure, I would say. Um, I've got one more. Have you got any more to cover? I've got one more to squeeze in. Don't you worry about that. Another another incredible time in front of a film as well. Um, this is uh, Deep Blue Sea 3, Pete. They actually made a third Deep Blue Sea film. Um, this is directed by John Pogue. Uh, not a director I ever want to see another film by, I'll be 100% honest. Um, and stars people that I'm not really familiar with. Um, I mean, I, to be honest, I don't really know what I expected going into Deep Blue Sea 3. In fact, no, I'll tell you what I did expect going into Deep Blue Sea 3. Because if you can have, uh, you can have a fairly low budget, enjoyable sequel to 47 Metres Down... There's no reason you can't have a fairly enjoyable, low-budget, deep blue C3. There's absolutely no reason you can't do it. It's proven you can make half-decent, enjoyable shark films on the cheap. So there is absolutely no excuse for this absolute shambles of a film. It's got one of the most. It's got some of the most ridiculous, out-of-place fight scenes I've seen. The CGI is pretty poor. The plot is just almost no, just non nonsensically ridiculous, as you'd expect from a deep blue C film. That would be fine if it was entertaining, not poorly acted, badly written, and with, as I said, one of the most just ridiculous fight scenes, a terrible overacting villain. Um, just basically, it was everything you everything you would expect Deep Blue Sea to, three to be if you hadn't seen Forty Seven Meters Down Uncaged and thought there might be hope. Um, there is no hope. Just watch that again. Steer well clear of this one. But do the sharks have really big brains, though? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, is LL Cool J in it? Though? No. Oh, I'm no. out. I mean, it's not exactly a series that's that's got pedigree. Don't get me wrong, but um, this was this was bad even by bad shark movie standards. <laughs> yeah, once you take out Thomas Jane and LL Cool J, I'm yeah. starting to lose interest. Yeah. Um, talking of losing interest, Paul, I'll wrap this up with a bang. <laughs> uh, I've got uh, an American pickle. This is the new one from or starring, I should say, uh, Seth Rogen, uh, directed by Brandon Trost. Um, it tells the story of a man from a hundred years past, a hundred years ago, who uh, is growing up as a farmer somewhere in Eastern Europe, I think. Uh, long story short, he uh, meets the woman of his dreams. They're going to be wed. I think they get married, actually. And then he accidentally gets pickled. 
Uh, <laughs> jump forward. <laughs> jump forward a hundred years. So a bit, a sort of like what happens in Idiocracy, I guess. But here, this time, this guy is portrayed. I would suggest as the idiot rather than the smart guy in the case of that film um, he turns up in modern day Brooklyn where he is eventually reunited with his only living blood relative a remaining blood relative played by Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen plays both of these characters. Uh, the Seth Rogen of modern day Brooklyn is the kind of hipster uh, app developing character cliche that you might expect to live in modern day Brooklyn and from this point we get a kind of worlds collide comedy spun um i thought i'd like this a bit more but it, it's a comedy film that didn't make me laugh i don't think a single time um i it's not bad it's not terribly made it there aren't no jokes but it didn't make me laugh. And I think from a Seth Rogen project, aside from one or two that he's made that are, you know, more intentionally serious, it has its moments. It shows that Rogen has a bit of range as an actor. Uh, I think his portrayal of the uh, the sort of bumpkin of the past is, is reasonably strong. But I also felt there's something slightly mean-spirited about the movie. And I think too often the uh, the historical figure i don't know what i want to call him uh, but this guy from the past is just portrayed as a sort of idiot with kind of dated values and it feels like it's borrowing quite a lot from something like uh borat right perhaps, okay uh in its in its sort of tone and with not maybe the comedic uh, adeptness of of a character like that so i don't know man i just didn't go for it it's just one of those it just it, it just left me cold um yeah it it happened and then it finished and and I can't really recommend it and I know that it's been getting better reviews than I've given it for sure um but no I just no not for me um I don't know maybe I've overdosed on Seth Rogen maybe I need a break I'm not sure <laughs> but an American pickle didn't work maybe he needs to pickle himself and come back in you know just a few years time maybe not a hundred but yeah that was an American pickle that's the end of this section I think that is indeed, yes. We'll be back after this. with uh, We're bringing back coming attractions because the cinema releases again. So uh, exciting to get into that after this. So back we are, as promised. We're going to talk just a little bit about a couple of things coming up at the actual cinema. Believe it or not, you can go there now uh, if you're willing if you are willing to uh, wear a mask and, and obviously, um, you know, you feel comfortable doing so. Paul, what have we got, first of all? Anything big coming out this week? Uh, well, the yeah, probably the most, one of the, not the most delayed film of all time, for sure. Uh, you might be aware of this. Uh, Tenet, uh, directed by Christopher Nolan, is finally hitting UK screens this week. Um, starring John David Washington, Robert Pattinson. Um, who else have we got in this? Um, Kenneth Branagh. Um, Elizabeth Tabucki, a, a, a large, a large starry cast. Um, yeah, it's the latest film from Christopher Nolan. Um, it's going to look incredible. There's no doubt in my mind that it's going to look incredible. Um, it's a big gamble, I think, releasing a film of this budget in the midst of as the kind of the first new release back. It's kind of certainly testing the water in terms of what a blockbuster can do at the moment in terms of bums on seats in cinemas. Um, but it's a new Christopher Nolan film. I'm excited. I'll be honest. Um, I th there's, there's always something about watching his films on the big screen that is is well worthwhile. They always look incredible in the cinema for sure. Um, where the story's going to go, I've no idea. Pete, what are, what are your thoughts on this one? Um, bullet points. My bullet points on Tenet are: uh, if it doesn't work out, they can always skip back in time and and do it again. <laughs> uh, second point is um, I don't want to sound like a broken record but I do have a sort of inkling of how I might feel about Tenet which is I'll basically be doing the same review that I do every time a Chris Nolan film comes up which yeah. is like what, what, a, what a visual stylist he's capable of being at the same time it would be so good if Chris Nolan felt real beating heart human emotions. Maybe those are going to be missing again, but we will see. But it will certainly be clever, clever. Uh, whether it's clever, clever, I'm slightly irritated or clever, clever, I'm slightly beguiled is uh, yet to well, be decided because I haven't you seen should, it. You, it's funny you say that because the early reviews um, have been somewhat mixed. Um, I'd say it's probably picked up some. I haven't read many. I haven't read. I've kind of read the top lines of some reviews, but... I would say it's probably picked up some of the worst reviews of a Nolan film that I've seen yet from certainly The Guardian didn't go much for it. IndieWire, I don't think I've gone much for it. 
Um, I haven't really read much more than that because I didn't. I want, I kind of, it's the kind of film you want to avoid spoilers. So I'll be very. I'm very intrigued. It doesn't dampen my excitement for seeing it on the big screen, but it's intriguing uh, because normally Nolan manages to cross over both um, critical critical acclaim and and commercial success. So um, mm. could be an interesting one. This I think. A couple more bullet points, Paul. Ship poster. What do you think yeah. about that? I, yeah, I really, agree. <laughs> it looks cheap. It looks cheap. Yeah. It looks dated. Uh, the other thing is, I thought that I was going to be able to be a smart ass and say that this is going to be my second favorite palindromic film release of the next month or so because <laughs> right. Ava, the Jessica Chastain action movie, is coming out. Yes. But then I've seen that that's getting fairly lukewarm reviews. So right. I can't guarantee that at this point. Although, to be honest, I, you know, Jessica Chastain can do very little wrong as far as I'm concerned. So I don't know, man. Like, I'm really looking forward to seeing this in, you know, IMAX, the biggest screen I possibly can, drinking it all in, the spectacle of it, the bombast of it all, the the ideas, the sort of puzzle box nature of a Chris Nolan film. At the same time, am I going to come out of it sort of buzzing about how this is one of the, the, you know, best films of the year? Perhaps not. Um, If I had to guess, will Tenet be on my best 10 films of the year once we get to that point? Quite probably not. But... I haven't seen the movie, so who am I? I mean, at this point, I will reserve judgment. I'll look forward to it. I'll get get myself down the IMAX and, and yeah, see see what we come to when it comes to next week's show, of course, Paul, because that's when we can have a big bumper review of the thing. Absolutely, yeah. Um, the other thing that seems to be, well, it seems to have preview screenings this weekend is X-Men New Mutants, uh, which has got to be one of the most delayed films of all time. I said it would be Tenet, but X-Men New Mutants, I think, trumps it because X-Men New Mutants is a number of years late now. Um, this stars Anya Taylor-Joy, uh, Macy Williams, um, among many other people that have probably since retired, I would have thought, since they filmed this. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of intrigued by this one, to be honest. It looks like they've taken a more horror approach to the kind of, it's like a more straight-up horror slash superhero movie. Um, the amount of reshoots that have gone on don't fill me with that much joy. The fact it's been delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed makes me think the studio don't have so much faith in it. Um, maybe and part of that may be down to the, the, the switch in ownership from Fox to Disney. Um, hopefully it will be that, uh, but that's preview in this weekend as well. Pete, do you care about this in the slightest? I care about Anya Taylor-Joy, as you're well aware. Right. <laughs> uh, I care about the fact that one of the cast members is uh, is maybe your spirit animal, Paul, because it is uh, Happy Anderson. I don't know if you're, yeah. you're aware of this particular <laughs> gentleman. Uh, I don't know. I, I, m- no, my instinct is I don't really care. But again... We've been so starved of cinematic releases. You better believe that this is one that I'll be watching at the cinema. <laughs> yeah. Um, so from that point of view, I look forward to it, I guess. Uh, this is the director of uh, The Fault in Our Stars, by the way. Are you aware of this? I was not aware of that. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, make of that what you will. Measure, measure that expectation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Could be some emo shit, but we'll see. We'll see. And uh, plastered all over the uh, poster that I'm looking at on the IMDb is IMAX. So obviously that's where they're trying to recoup some of the cash they spent on this thing. So yeah, we'll see. And, you know, in due course, hopefully next week, if not the week after, we'll have a full review and our full thoughts. And so that's probably the best way to, to judge the movie rather than wild speculation. But, uh, Paul, are there any others or should we keep it at two for this week? Uh, she Dies Tomorrow is out streaming uh, wide this week as well. So if you are interested in that, that I, th- I, well, it, I guess it may be coming to some smaller cinemas. I haven't, I haven't been looking for it myself because I was lucky enough to see it on a preview. But um, yeah, that is due out this weekend as well. So if you're if that is something more independent tickles your fancy, then She Dies Tomorrow is definitely worth a look. Nice. Well, with that having been said then let's check out for just a moment we'll be right back with not one but two features first of which will be proxima right after this so yeah back we are with uh the first review of the week this is proxima um directed by um alice winnicore who is not a, a talent i'm familiar with but i feel like i should be after watching this which should give you some indication of, of where i stand but yeah you you know alice winnicore uh, alice winnicore is the uh, screenwriter who wrote uh, mustang okay in which case yes i'm definitely familiar with alice winnicore and i wish i could re-record this section but i'm not i'm not gonna i'm not gonna cheat my way out i'm gonna say i'm not familiar with alice winnicore <laughs> there we go um so yeah 
and it, it it happens to the best of us, doesn't it, yes. Paul? To be fair, it's it's hard to remember the the name and and body of work of every single yeah, filmmaker absolutely. that there is right now. But yeah, do you want to set this one up, or shall you I? You go for it. You go for it. Um, well, very briefly, yeah, we've got Ava Green in the leading role here, and she plays an astronaut who's preparing for a one-year mission aboard the International Space Station. But the film is not concerned with the uh, machinations of life in space. Instead, it's all about the preparation. The film focuses on her time in training with her team, uh, including, amongst others, a character played by Matt Dillon, who's a sort of very headstrong, if not leaning into slightly belligerent uh, male compatriot uh, and they need to go into isolation in order to prepare for this mission in order to be contamination free within those confines the Avergreen character is going to be unable to spend time with her daughter her young daughter who's looked up to her for her whole life as this woman who has reached the very pinnacle of her profession she's being wrenched away she's got one hand reaching towards the skies she's got the other hand reaching for her daughter and this is the concern of this movie we'll talk about our thoughts right after this Yeah, so the first thing that jumps out at me from this one, Pete, is as you as you mentioned before, the clip there is the fact that if you're expecting this to be kind of set in space, then you could possibly, I wouldn't say dis disappointed is probably the wrong word, but this is certainly focused on uh, more on the, the training program for people to go to the International Space Station and apparently based um, quite uh, fairly closely in parts, I think on, on, on a true team of astronauts is my understanding of it, that were preparing to go to the International Space Station. Uh, but due to delayed release, I think the, the project, the actual... The actual launch has beat the film out, which is, I guess, kind of a shame in some ways. But regardless, I don't, I don't think it harms the film. But yeah, the, the focus is definitely here on um, a the relationship between Ava Green's character and her young daughter, um, and b the kind of the training that astronauts go through to get into space, and c um, a big focus of it as well is the expectation of Ava Green um, and how she will perform as a female astronaut. Um, I think those are the kind of the, the three major focuses here, um, and. And for me, I think they all worked really well here for me. I, I, would, I didn't know what to expect from this, I have to say, um, because I knew very little about it going in. The trailer, It was one of those trailers that kind of appeared out of the blue for me. And I thought, oh, that looks kind of cool. Um, and it's nice to see Ava Green playing, in. well, in my experience, a certainly a more serious role compared to a lot of the things I've seen her in over the past few years. And I think she, she handled it remarkably well, Pete, would be my first thoughts. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that she has... Um taken a lot of roles in which she sort of plays characters who are at the fringes like the fringe of sanity or the fringe of sort of cartoonishness perhaps and I really love her for those roles uh, and of course she was a you know a Bond uh, character uh, as well a significant Bond character in recent Bond history but uh, remembering all the way back to things like The Dreamers. Ava Green is this sort of magnetic screen presence that you can't ignore in anything. But here, it's all dialed back. It's more about small gestures. It's more about, uh, you know, the camera lingering on her face for a longer time and just spending time with her and her own thoughts and contemplation, which might all sound a little bit free of action or excitement but as you were saying Paul it's not really the concern of the movie and it's not the concern of Alice Winokur as a filmmaker here I mean thinking about something like Mustang the strength of that movie was the uh, interrelationship between the group of young girls and their interactions with the bits of the outside world that they touched and in the same way because we've got this isolation here and the inability to access the outside world any attempt to make any attempt made to access that outside world has within it a kind of um, spark, a kind of thrill. 
and wouldn't you know it this has come out at a time where we've spent months of our lives indoors and unable to access the outside yeah. world i mean it's hard to miss that in the movie when you see particularly the stuff that happens towards the end of the training where they have to go into absolute you know contamin contamination free isolation and a particularly pivotal scene that i won't spoil that involves ava green's character breaking out a little bit from the rules and parameters that she's supposed to follow that might have some resonance in the modern world as well perhaps if you really dig around so from that re regard this really struck me i mean this was the first film i saw back in the cinema after the closure of the, all the cinemas and lockdown and so on so it hit me relatively hard from that point of view and also from the point of view that Winokur as a writer knows, I mean, talking of Chris Nolan before, Alice Winokur knows how to write about human beings, I think, in a, in a way that is, again, fairly difficult to miss. And so for all of those reasons, I was very much on board early. Like I knew that I was in safe hands and I've mentioned this on the show before, but I think that's so important that early in a film you feel like, you trust the filmmakers to take you on the yeah, journey that they're, they're taking on, taking you on. And uh, yeah, I, I, there's so much to compliment. I just wanted to mention before I throw back over to you, Paul, uh, a really strong supporting role as well for Sandra Huller that we praised in Tony Erdman, of course, the central mm. female character in Tony Erdman. And here she's really good. Again, like subdued, uh, sort of key low. And, uh, and she's responsible for basically supporting Ava Green as another female in the institute or whatever you would call it, the training center where they are, uh, and giving her not only professional support, but at certain turns, emotional and almost familial support as well. And I thought that was just a really well cast role and well performed role from Sandra Huller. So I wanted to mention it before we, we forgot to. Any other things to pick up? Uh, yeah, I mean, take the baton. Yeah, no, I, I just think it's it's just a, a very strong, very strong, effective drama film. And I think performances-wise, I thought Matt Dillon was great here. He's not always an actor that I love, I'll be honest. Um, but he's in the past few years, he's certainly making some, uh, certainly making some more interesting, more interesting career moves. And I think, don't get me wrong, I don't think it's a stretch to play an arrogant American astronaut. Don't get me wrong, but I think he does it. I think he did it really well, to be fair, in this. Um, and he kind of he stood out for me as well and the way he the way he kind of the way like his character kind of broke down to accepting that Ava Green was what a surprise women can be astronauts too like um like the but the, the his kind of learning process with coming to terms with that I thought was great and I think I thought he handled it really really well um what I will say for me the only the only slight downside for me was you talk about this this narrative point at the end um I'm not going to go into spoilers here. I thought that moment was a little bit silly, um, and I, I I need I haven't looked. I was trying to find out whether that did actually happen on this mission or not in the training for the mission. But there's a, there's a slight moment of narrative silliness that I thought threatened to threatened to undo some of the goodwill that the film had built. Um, it didn't ruin. It didn't kill. It didn't sort of kill off the film for me. But I thought it could have probably done without it. Kind of, it just felt a little bit melodramatic towards the end um do you know the bit i'm referring to Pete? of course i do but I, yeah i yeah. i just i think i fall on the other side of that line i i think that that is a great narrative decision because i think that it i mean i i know i do this on this show i know that i do this but when you're looking at i know we're based this is based as you quite rightly said on real astronauts we even see sort of title cards at the end with their faces yeah. and details about their own lives and so on but as a piece also of narrative fiction or at least embellished reality uh it's a mother who's going to go off into the sky at a certain point and needs to prepare her daughter for that idea to me i don't watch a movie like that and not think that there is a subtext that the mm. writer at least in in the form of alice winnaker here has in mind so I think when that's running in the background for me, that moment or those moments that we're talking about just sort of punched quite hard. And and th there was a sort of swelling emotional response to, that I had to that. And, and intellectually, as you say, I mean, yes, you do feel like, would this really happen? I'm not sure that it would. Probably that would be, you know, clamped down on or there would be more sort of security or checks or whatever it might be. But yeah, as a piece of sort of emotional communication i i found it pretty effective and and it made me think about um is it james gray the the director of the um ad astra, ad astra thank you yeah, yeah it just seemed to me to be um 
doing something that maybe a film like Ad Astra was reaching for, but doing it just a lot more deftly. And albeit they're very different films. On the surface, you know, one of them spends a lot mm. of time in space and the other one doesn't. But I think you get the point, right? I think I think this is the superior film if we're trying to uh, touch on maybe slightly deeper, more meaningful issues. Uh, not that that's necessarily the, you know, only playing field for competition here not that they're even no, in okay. competition but yeah i no. i felt the way and i like this film a great deal i really did I, I felt like it was just a a terrific not even surprise because i know the filmmaker and i know ava green and that was a bit enough to convince me to go in the first place but even then like you said about matt dylan for example uh, that character could so easily have been one note and for a long time it felt like it was going to be or he was going to be yeah. and then it, that wasn't the case and even things like um just I like films that invest time in the sort of technical aspects of um, not even preparation, but, you know, like professions with high levels of technicality. So in here, when they're doing the stuff in a swimming pool, they're learning what it's like to be in space and like, you know, uh, go through a routine and then go through it again. The stuff with the zero G, like I love that stuff. I, I just. Yeah, there's an there's a t- an attention to detail here that I think that, that I think, would you know, really does need to be brought up. And I think that, yeah, they. Um, Alice Winnicott isn't isn't shy about showing you the daily grind of like taking the sort of the for want of a better word taking the glamour out of being if you can take the glamour out of being an astronaut um, certainly this is one of those films that shows just how tough it is to get into space and just how much you have to condition your body to do it um, and I, yeah I really like that I really like that element of it I thought that was really well handled yeah yeah absolutely and and I would say a sort of slightly qualified recommendation, but the Matthias Schoenart's drama um, Disorder was written and directed by Alice Winokur as well and is worth a look if you like this and okay. her stuff. But maybe front of the line there, front of the list should be Mustang because that's great and we both Mustang sort is of really gushed good, about yeah. it before. Yeah, but yeah, really that, so that one is Proxima. Um, I think it's uh, 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 two thumbs up from me and maybe one and a half from you. <laughs> And it's still pretty much two thumbs up for me. I really enjoyed it. As I said, that it's the, the 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 narrative what narrative structure I didn't like, didn't harm, didn't hurt the film for me overall. Um, I still think it's a very well put together and very engaging drama. So yeah, um, it becomes definitely comes recommended for me as well. Nice. Well, uh, that is not all for today. We will be back in just a moment with our second feature review. That's Baby Teeth. Right after this. So yeah, this uh, second review of the week, as Pete said, is Baby Teeth. This is directed by, I think, an Australian director called Shannon Murphy um, and stars um, rising star Eliza Scanlon, Michelle Tosser's Toby Wallace, Ben Mendelsohn's in here um, and focuses around the pretty, at times, heart-moving story um, about uh, Mila, who's a seriously seriously ill teenager who falls in love with a drug dealer um, her, who proves to be her parents' worst nightmare. Um, yeah, before we get into it, uh, here's a clip. Your hair's like, uh... What? Your hair's like bangles or something. Bangles? Like, with the light, it's like bangles. It's... Bam. Yours is nice, too. Yeah, but look at this. Look at that, see? I cut myself, see? I had to get on like a weird angle to get to that bit. Like... Can I feel? Yeah. It's like mm. snake skin. Yeah. yeah, so set up pretty well, Paul, uh, here. As you mentioned, uh, the director, Shannon Murphy, and writer, I'll add, uh, Rita Kalnashai. I think I'm right in saying both first time in terms of feature filmmaking. It's definitely a feature, yeah, it's definitely a feature movie from Shannon Murphy, um, for sure. Yeah. Um, as for the writer, I, I don't think know, that's the case. Um, yes, so from the very outset, we get the introduction of the Moses character played by Toby Wallace as this kind of guy from the wrong side of the side of the tracks, and he literally meets our heroine, I guess, in the form of Miller, played by Eliza Scanlon, by the tracks. Uh, it's almost a visual metaphor, isn't it? Uh, and uh, yes, he introduces himself by kind of coming to her aid in a way that's relatively sensitive even though there's a sort of aura of danger and threat around this guy Uh, from that point he quickly becomes uh, a part of her life and is introduced to her parents who are very much not approving Uh, in those roles you have of course Essie Davis and Ben Mendelsohn who I think are 
between them one of the great strengths of the film here because they're they're these conflicted parents who on the one hand don't want anything to do with this guy who seems to have drug dependency issues seems to be uh, criminal effectively uh seems to be trying yeah. to steal from them at every turn every available turn but at the same time puts a smile on their daughter's face and their daughter lest we forget is terminally ill and every smile on her face is a battle won and so they have to come to the rather uncomfortable realization that they're kind of stuck with this guy and if they want to be good to their daughter which they of course do then they're gonna have to let him stay around at least to some degree for the amount of time that that can be tolerated uh, from this point we have a series of events paul uh, take take the reins and and tell me what you thought of the movie uh, i for the most part i really like the movie i have to say it is um gut-wrenchingly sad in places as, as one might expect but this is one of those films that again drama is was driven by a name firstly for me uh, script and then almost equally performances here um, and I think for the most part both are very very strong here um, Eliza Scanlon I thought was was brilliant um, in the in the in the in the lead role um, I genuinely could I genuinely could engage with her as a character I could like the relationship she built with um she built with um, Toby Wallace who plays Moses I thought was great I think they had a lot of chemistry um, and I think that they are certainly the, the heart of the film um, another person that stands out for me here um, perhaps unsurprisingly because my love for this man knows no bounds uh, that's Ben Mendelsohn um, on supporting duty as the father of the teenage girl um, Ben Mendelsohn for me is rarely gives a bad performance but for me Pete I th- for me, he was probably the standout of the film here. Um, I thought he was absolutely superb, and it, I'd be very surprised if a best actor nod or best supporting actor nod doesn't come his way for his role here. I just thought he was absolutely brilliant as the as the conflicted father who kind of just didn't really know what to do, didn't know what he wanted to do about this, knew what he should do with the Moses character, but then ultimately cared about his daughter. Um, and I think that really came across his his conflicted character. I think was one of the strengths of the film. Um, yeah, I thought for the most part it's a, it's a very strong drama. I will say, and I'll be interested to see what you th- what you th- what you come back to me w- with here is there are times with some of the subtitles, some of the way it's kind of broken down, not into chapters as such, but the way some of the the kind of the thoughts are put on screen, where I thought it was possibly trying a little bit too hard to be hip in places. But it's a and that it's a minor gripe with what I, otherwise I thought was a pretty engaging. Yeah, film. originally I, I believe the source material is um, theatrical. I think it was a stage play. Um, right. And so, yeah, it's been adapted and choices have been made. And I kind of partly agree, I think. Um, at, at certain times I found those, they're not even title cards, are they? They're just like text on the screen. And, and some of yeah. them will be like, you know, that morning or something. But then some of them will be like, it didn't, the yeah, it'll be like, it didn't feel like love that day or something like that, which feels more like the chapter heading for a novel rather than maybe um, entirely necessary here although for the most part I forgave it or, or accepted it as part of the fabric of what is a relatively unconventional bit of filmmaking I mean there are things to its credit in terms of setting up characters really efficiently like the way that Ben Mendelssohn's character we get to learn so much about him from a few sequences the fact that he works as like a psychiatrist or psychologist and he I think the first time we see him in his psychiatrist or psychologist office is um, basically off the on the clock but shagging and you don't know who the person is that he is hooking up with until you realize this is actually his wife and they've just fitted this time into the schedule that they are both holding down and then the interactions that he has with the character that at some points I felt teetered slightly towards um, underwritten but the neighbour character pregnant neighbour who's over the road um, and I guess that character an event that happens with that character later on in the movie felt like maybe a little bit much but yeah then there's the other side of this because you've touched on it already i mean eliza scanlon that i know from stuff like uh, the gillian jacobs adaptation sharp Obje- uh, sharp objects with um amy adams um, and of course from mm. the greta gerwig little women movie little last woman, year yeah uh, as the actress when i watched that that i thought who is she like where have i seen her before and now her face is sort of seared into my mind because you rightly credit ben mendelson here i think he's great but this is a star-making role for Eliza Scanlon. Oh, like, undoubtedly, yeah. Oh, yeah, don't man. get me wrong. Yeah, maybe I'm maybe I'm underselling her here. She is there, great in this. Yeah, there are things that she does in convey in conveying what's going on internally with this character that just seem 
like things that you would expect from a vastly more experienced actress. Not that she hasn't obviously got, you know, miles on the clock already and she hasn't done some really good work, but she was a revelation here, man. And like, once it gets to the real gut punches at the end, like the real, like, you know, uh, the moments at which my uh, obligatory cinema face mask was becoming increasingly damp, uh, I was so swept up in the handling of the material that when I came out of the cinema and later read some kind of critical responses, letterbox reviews and so on, and people saying like, oh, this thing didn't work and this thing was a bit messy and a bit loose. I just thought I fucking hate film criticism sometimes because <laughs> sometimes it's like, um, I know that this is somebody else's quote and not mine, but I can't give credit because I can't remember who. It, the idea that reviewing something like film in words is like dancing about architecture. like. I can't convey what this film made me feel because it would just me, be me sort of going into a, a diverse range of sort of emotional noises, I guess. Um, it, it, I, I haven't been as moved in the cinema as I was in this movie for a long time. Uh, since A Ghost Story, perhaps, uh, which was my film of the year in the year of its release, which was now, what, two or three years ago. Um, maybe at home, sure, I watch a lot more films at home, but some of the line choices towards the end of the movie. I, I agree. It, it definitely, it's definitely a film that it, I think it just it, keep, it keeps improving as it goes along, I think. Um, I think by, by the end, I was certainly more engaged than I was at the beginning. That's not to say it's a bad film again, um, but yeah, I, 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 yeah, it certainly builds to an emotional crescendo for sure. Uh, I didn't expect it to leave me in tears, um, and it did. Uh, I'll be, I'm, I'm with you on that one. And I watched it at home, so the impact is probably lessened. To be fair, so um, yeah, absolutely. I'd have liked to, yeah, be intrigued to see this at the cinema to see if it leaves me. Well, that being said, it did have an impact on me regardless. Yeah. But yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly not without, certainly not without an impact. It's not one for the definitely bring tissues absolutely and and the the choice made as well without spoiling anything at the end of the movie but the choice made to take one sequence out of the chronology of the movie and reposition it i think is is incredibly brilliantly clever. well yeah. judged yeah and and again a yeah. couple of the lines there particularly in an interaction between ben mendelson's father character and eliza scanlon's miller I just one of the most memorable scenes of the year for me and and you know if we if I twist your arm and, and we can do a uh, memorable scenes of the year top five or whatever come December uh yeah it will be in there for sure because really really well written memorable stuff and and for that reason I can forgive it like a bit of like baggy stuff here and there or a maybe less developed character or two because at the heart of this thing man is it a real beating heart and and yeah you've rightly given a a warning, take some tissues uh, wherever yeah. you see this movie because, uh, yeah, it's a doozy. Um, Paul, before we get out of here for this week, uh, we'll pull ourselves together and maybe just give credit to a couple of things. Is there anything in particular that you want to give credit to this week? Yes, there, uh, there absolutely is. It's the reason I haven't watched that many films uh, this week. It's not Red Dead Online, which I've discovered quite late uh, in its life, which I'm really enjoying. It is the HBO series um, Succession, um, starring Brian Cox, Kieran Culkin, Sarah Snook, among other incredible actors. Um, this is created by Jesse Armstrong, who people will probably know as one of the co-creators of Peep Show way back when, um, but also he's done some writing for the thick of it. Um, it basically follows a, a dysfunctional um, American media family, not not too dissimilar to the Murdochs, one might say, and as rumour is that Jesse Armstrong did have an unfinished script about the Murdochs before we went to HBO with this. Um, so Brian Cox plays the patriarch of this incredibly wealthy media corporation and uh, all and his children are all assholes. They're all incredibly rich. They're all out to get each other. Brian Cox he seems to be out to fuck everyone over as well. Um, it's one of the finest Brian Cox performances I've seen full stop. I'm midway through season two now. And I'll be honest, it's one of the most engaging bits of television I've seen in many a year. So um, I'm not going to spoil too much about what happens. Everyone is absolutely superb in, on superb form here. Um, the writing is as sharp as you'd expect from from Jesse Armstrong. Um, and it's kind of like, it's almost like Net HBO have just come along and said, fuck you, remember, we're, remember HBO are still here, we can make this. Uh, and it's absolutely superb. HBO, you say, Paul. Um, I'm going to tag on that one with another HBO one that is also a BBC iPlayer property and I think co-funded perhaps by the BBC. This one is I May Destroy You, which I imagine some people have picked up some buzz uh, from. 
and with good reason. Uh, Michaela Coel is the, the woman at its centre, both creatively and on screen. And this thing just blew my socks off, man. Like I'd heard people that I respect and trust recommending it and, and sort of saying really, really complimentary things. But I wasn't prepared for just how much Michaela Coel has achieved with this series. It's a series that sets out to examine uh, boundaries of consent and identity and growing up in modern day England, I suppose. Um, a girl from a mixed background, a, a African background and perhaps parents from two countries. I'm not sure in Coel's case, but the character, I think, in the series. Uh, and here she early on has a night out that has gaps in it um she's blacked out something's happened it doesn't seem like it was good she's getting flashbacks she's getting images that may be implanted in her mind maybe her imagination but you get the increasing feeling that something very very bad happened uh, the 12 episodes of the series each one only i think 30 minutes long uh, dissects from different angles basically the psyche of this character and the psyche I think of a generation to a certain degree if that doesn't sound like getting carried away and some of the filmmaking here man like sometimes on our show we'll say like oh we can't talk about this too much because it's tv and not film and I think that line is getting increasingly blurred because some oh, of sure. the stylistic yeah, choices in I May Destroy You are, are just really phenomenal just really uh refreshing for want of a, a slightly more original word to describe this work but um yeah the, the actress also or coel i should say is the the writer here creator director of a lot of the episodes and the star um she's someone who came to prominence with a series called chewing gum but herself went through uh, a very traumatic life experience that led her to cancel or shut down all of her social media and move to Italy and was very much the propulsive force behind the series I May Destroy You. She was also in stuff like um, Black Mirror. She's in Nosedive. She's in the SS Callister episode as well. Um, so a kind of face that you okay. might have seen around but never really known, you know, where else you've seen her. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's without a shadow of a doubt the best television I've seen in a great deal of time. Well, once you, once once you finish that, watch Succession and vice versa. Yeah, we'll switch. Sure. We'll yeah. switch. Yeah, it sounds like a good exchange to me. <laughs> For folks in the UK, it's. Did you say yours is available through Now TV? Uh, now TV at the moment. Yeah, yeah. and until December the seventh. And I may destroy you is available on BBC iPlayer in its entirety. So yeah, get on it if you haven't up to now. Well, but in both cases, it sounds like. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. I can't can't recommend Succession highly enough. And I'll jump on that show as soon as I'm done with it. Cool. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Hope you've enjoyed it. Hope it doesn't sound like absolute trash. Uh, please get in touch. <laughs> Tell us what you thought of our reviews, what you thought of the films, if you've had a chance to check them out. If you've got any suggestions for the show, also let us know. In addition, we should say those suggestions can be sent our way. At Strangers Cinema is the Twitter handle. Strangersinacinema at gmail.com is the email address. And then you'll be able to type Strangers in a Cinema into the general internet and find our other channels there. We welcome you to do that. Paul, anything else for this week? Uh, no, all I can say is we will be back in well, around seven days because I'm very excited to talk about Tenet. So, yeah. Um, yeah, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Shut up and sit down.